a Highline podcast. We live in a complicated and fascinating world that invites us to dive deep into its intricacies. Exploring the ideas and events that excite, intrigue, irritate, and confound us is how we graduate our knowledge beyond meme culture. Join us over a cocktail as we expand our understanding and share in the beauty we find along the way. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. And I'm Stephen Henning. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. Oh, we're into it now. Yes, we are. (laughs) Well, do we have to start this formally? Hello. <laughs> there we go. Hello. How y'all doing tonight? We're great. What an energy we have this week. Wow. A little a little uh, little uh glimpse into the whiskey bench, guys. <gasps> we start recording and then like eight minutes and eleven seconds later, we're like, oh, I guess we should start We're making a show now. Make it formal. <laughs> and we it's start happening. With, Hello. I love it. So we usually already greet each other once and then, then we do it. Then we fake it for you guys. You fake it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it is true. Though, you know, because like we've offloaded the work by pre-taping our intros, you know, having mm. that great script at the top. So we really can cut in whenever. True. Mr. Editor, producer man. I How are say- you guys this week? Oh, very busy. Very oh, busy. I'm swamped. But, but I feel like that. Oh, <laughs> said a lot. <laughs> it's just been a week, but I've been saying that for like. I'm kind of with you all summer. So I don't know this when summer's it's going to been up. a week, man. <laughs> it oh, sure yeah. has. <laughs> when is it going to end? No, I don't really want summer to end. I'm enjoying my garden. It's I harvested my garlic last night, so that's Excellent. a thing. Excellent. Excellent. No, it's drying in my laundry room, as one does. So soon enough, got it. Got a lot though. Nice. And we're having a delicious cocktail tonight. Yes, we are. And I'm <laughs> hitting the spot right now. It Love is it. my fave. Today was just like a, I don't even know. It's one of those days where roll up to the job site. I'm on this job right now that just seems to be never ending, and uh, I'm not even. I wasn't even really supposed to be a part of it, but. I never, I never say no. Um, Are you getting paid for this at least? Yeah, I'm getting okay, paid. Okay, good. But not enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I hate this. Not, not enough for the that misery it causes. I shouldn't complain. I have great work. You know, we roll in. We were there yesterday. It was, you know, a pretty productive day. We've got to take care of this be- support beam that needed some reinforcement and things like that. I'm like, ah, all right, we'll roll in the morning. It should probably take an hour. Six hours later... We get that done. Oh my god! And then, Whoa. like, just everything's taking like four times as long as it should. Mm. And it's an old, old, old piece of crap, junky garage that we're converting into like a ski shack. So to make it nice takes a lot of fussing. Mm. So it's gonna I'm, look sweet when it's done. I'm sure, but lots of goofiness. So I am. Pumped to be drinking a martini right now. Mm-hmm. Me so. too. Oh, a martini, you say? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like dinner <laughs> last night. I don't really have anything in the house. So I was like, what can I What can I make? I was like, well, I always have gin and vermouth. 
So And you know I'm a fan. Yeah. So I was like, you know what? Let's make some strong martinis. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in unusual form, I'm going to start with our drink instead of Henning. The uh, first time. Go oh, for right. it. Y'all know what I'm Whoa. drinking already, so. <laughs> <laughs> we are drinking ourselves a lovely dry gin martini with a twist of lime. It is just dry gin, dry vermouth, and a lemon twist. So I go like two ounces of gin and an ounce of dry vermouth. And then a little lemon peel. Give it a little squeeze to express the oils. and uh, Shake it, yeah. No shaking. <gasps> stir. Oh, yeah. What am I saying? And shake it. I think I shook my martinis on Christmas Eve. Oof. You can. Mm. But, I wanted right. them cold, but all this right. is cold. I don't know a lot about the martini, but we, 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 can, we can dive into this, actually. The trope, I guess, is like, I'm on a martini, shake it, not stirred, right? Because right. of, you know, James Bond or whatever. But tradition says that you are technically not supposed to shake a martini. And that is because the vermouth um, is just a very silky, kind of delicate spirit. And if you shake it, the ice breaks up and then starts to shear the molecules and so it makes it kind of flat and flattens out the vermouth so you don't have that you know so silky smooth almost you oily can, you can see it yeah. floating on the surface yeah it's, yeah it's got all these velvety oils and things like that when mm-hmm. you shake it you disrupt those oils uh, and you get like a flat drink mm-hmm. that's why you're not supposed to that makes sense and then i don't even know what's with dirty martinis <laughs> i can't do it <laughs> yeah I don't really drink them either. Yeah, so, I, this is how I prefer my martini, which is right. a twist of lemon. So, so we'll go there. Also, I, I don't know for certain, but I'm pretty sure that like in the books, James Bond only orders a martini once. Hmm. And it's in Casino Royale. And he orders a Vesper martini, not even like a... What's a Vesper martini? It's like a v- mixture of gin and vodka and maybe Lillette Blanc, which is like a fortified wine. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I don't think he actually orders any other martinis in the books. And I don't think for certain that he ever orders them shaken, not stirred. Yeah, I'd love to know the origins of that. Who knows? Yeah. Some branding. It's just branding. branding. No, I know. Yeah, but like why someone obviously who doesn't know. That's why you can't believe the things you see on the TV. Yeah. Yeah. What? (laughs) It's all propaganda. Everything is. Serious? Here, I've been saying my favorite documentary series has been put out by Marvel. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Wakanda's not even a real place, dude. Oh, boy. Heartbreaking. If We're only, shatter- though. Shattering your world tonight, I think. <laughs> Steve Rogers? Captain America? What? <laughs> yeah, man. Oh. I think... I can confidently say that Ron Swanson is more of a man than James Bond ever was because he drinks Lagavulin scotch whiskey <laughs> and not Fair. not pansy <laughs> martinis. I feel like Ron, Bond. Ron Swanson well. in an episode at one point that says he says clear alcohols are for rich women on diets. 
<laughs> that is brilliant and, and uh, yep. it's kind of a mantra of mine at this point fair enough that should oh. be a bumper sticker oh so powerful yep <laughs> i have a finger of lagavulin whiskey tonight i am apropos i am still on the offerman limited the 11 year old finish in guinness casks delicious nice. as always it's the staple that I need in my life right now. It's a constant. <laughs> I look forward to Whiskey Bench so that I can drink more of this whiskey. Right. Just a little bit of stability. Oh my gosh, I'm getting a call from Cameron Blaze to Mars. On Skype? Get out of here, Cameron. No, on Discord. Oh, wait, wait. He said have me on quick. What? No. I, we can't even do that, I don't think. That's a thing. Well, you got to invite him to the server, and then he just yeah. like rolls oh in. Oh my god. We don't do this. You know, Torno, I suppose what we could do. <laughs> oh, no. What did he say? I don't know what Torno He says you have to have me on quick. I got to tell the people that Pelosi's sex tape is out. Oh, oh I wish it was. <laughs> she do has you? massive breasts. <laughs> have you guys ever noticed that? <laughs> no, I never ever in my life have noticed that. I 100% tell you that I, as a straight man, have never noticed I can't not see it. Usually, now that when I have. On, usually when she's on screen, I just look away. <laughs> I, now that I've told you this, it is all you will see when you watch her. No. Yikes. Yikes. Oh my God. We have been derailed. Absolutely. Cameron Blaze DeMars just absolutely <laughs> stole the show. It, Get out of here, man. Even though he was the co host of Whiskey Bench 1.0. Oh, That's is, true. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. He was founding. <laughs> That's hilarious. Founder. He's here to, maybe this is a coup. He's trying to take it over again. Better not. Disruption. Kick us out. <laughs> All right. Dang. So we're drinking martinis and Lagavulin. Yep. Yes. We're here. We're doing it. No clear alcohols for me. <laughs> I don't have to worry about shaken or stirred because I just pour it. You just pour it. I just poured. That was, that's <laughs> been my favorite, um, social media post we've made as the whiskey bench is when uh torna took a photo of the bottle of lagavulin and for the recipe just said pour as much as you want <laughs> yep <laughs> <laughs> i gotta get that, that framed <laughs> <laughs> it's so good so good yeah yeah but we're back we're emotionally decompressing from afghanistan still i think I we're still emotionally compressing. What? Yeah. Yeah. Well. There's a lot building there. But tonight, if I may. Yeah, we're gonna shift gears a little bit. Ooh, um, child. Because <laughs> thoughts. I got thoughts. Um. <laughs> because I wasn't here two episodes ago, we had Josh and Kevin. Kevin and Alex from the Into Kevin Podcast. Son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. Let's maybe edit that out. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, yeah. guys. I was talking to Josh last night. Kevin That's and true. Alex. Yes. God bless them. They came on. Thank you both for doing that. Filling the void that I leave behind. <laughs> when I'm not yes. Um, um, but y'all had a very interesting conversation. And I listen to it and really wish that I was there. So I would kind of like to pick up sort of where you guys left off and also share some of my thoughts on the episode. Ooh, I'm so down just because I'm most nervous <laughs> to hear this. <laughs> um, no, that wasn't you like that. <laughs> I know. <this> funny. 
just because I've I've been the most nervous to debrief oh, no. the part of the show <laughs> where we all tried to speak <clears throat> for you. <laughs> that was an interesting part um, of the show. <laughs> I really, I really did my best. And I've been nervous to hear if you even think I got close. No, I yeah, I think I think you did a you did a fair job. I think there was just a lot of things throughout. I'm not even I'm not even here to uh, directly uh, address like the specific sure. characterization of what I, you guys thought I would think. Literally from the within the first like three minutes of the episode, I was like, oh, and like jotting down notes. Oh, so okay. I just got like Good. a lot of notes. Oh, amazing, <laughs> yeah. amazing. So and it was- I made the valiant effort to fill in yes. for you advocate for you and mm-hmm. uh we'll just i guess we'll just leave it at that i did my best yeah i'm <laughs> i didn't i didn't walk away from it thinking screw that henning so uh, henning, <laughs> yeah i hope it wasn't something like henning really does not understand what i try to say no i don't think so no but i think there were dimensions missing right so perfect uh i, I wrote down t- only assumed yes that, that was so I wrote down like a ton of notes and then realized it was too much. So I tried to organize it by like category. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Amazing. So I thought we could start with, I kind of broke the conversation down from, it broke it down into charity taxes and what the market is. Okay. Okay. So I thought we could maybe dive into the charity aspect first. I thought it was interesting funny uh that i think it was alex who put this forth um that the consumer doesn't have perfect knowledge which is true right which we touched base on in the regulation episode a little bit about um yes empowering the uh consumer yes with more knowledge right and what i found funny about that was a note i had written down from the top of the episode was the astron- uh, Austrian economist um, Friedrich Hayek's what he calls the knowledge problem, which is attributed to centralized economic planning. And what the knowledge problem explains is that because knowledge is dispersed throughout society, no one individual has enough knowledge to make efficient decisions for society at large. Therefore, when a centralized authority attempts to make economic decisions, resources are never allocated efficiently, price signals are distorted, um, and the basic Mm. communication between people necessary to ensure that voluntary exchange can flourish and that people's needs can be met, that communication is disrupted. So in my view, the government suffers from the knowledge problem, right? Any centralized authority Mm -hmm. suffers from the knowledge problem um, for the very reason that Alex pointed out that no one individual has enough knowledge to make efficient, rational decisions for society at large. So I don't think that the knowledge problem advocates for more government to make more decisions. I think it advocates for less government so that those decisions can be made on an individual basis and cumulatively what those decisions Mm. are is the market. Wow. You just explained that so well. I saw all those dots connect one after another because if we all don't have, (laughs) like, of course 
an individual consumer doesn't have perfect knowledge. That's that was kind of put forward as a problem. Mm-hmm. But why would we assume that like a government entity does right have that knowledge and therefore True. can solve the problem better? And if you look at if you take that example as each consumer being a data point, each consumer might have a different piece of information or knowledge, right? Yeah. So all of that is trending towards a more complete data set of accurate information. Right. God, I love federalism. I stand federalism. Right. That's what that's what's <laughs> right. the beauty of a limited government that that isn't so heavily involved in making market decisions. Right. right. A market of three hundred and fifty million people in the United States is going to be more data points. Exponentially more than whatever it is, a few thousand people in a bureaucracy right. can determine. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, cool. Now, obviously, to be fair, there's all sorts of research and data collection that we are, have more readily available now as far as being able to take and extrapolate from just with how much data is collected on the individual and things like that. But that's a... But that's imperfect too. Right, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so in the context of the charity conversation you guys were having, I think that decentralized charitable efforts, I think you can argue those are more efficient and because of this knowledge problem and are therefore more impactful um, because it is local knowledge addressing local needs. Um, So once you scale that to federal agencies that are stuffed with bureaucracy, Price signals are distorted, meaning that it's harder to determine what the need is and what is required to meet that need. Resources are wasted, and the problem sort of steadily grows larger and larger um, as an inefficient bureaucracy kind of chews around at the edges of it. And I think a good example of this is the way the government is trying to address the homeless problem in LA. Mm-hmm. They are creating, they're, they're building these. Um, small housing units, housing I'm putting in quotes because they're essentially like sheds that you would have in your yard. So super limited, like they don't have plumbing, you know, they're not, it's not a home. It's, it's just, it's a roof over your head. It's costing the government $350,000 per unit to make that. That's wildly inefficient, right? So like, is that going to make a bigger dent in addressing homelessness or like the local shelter that's run by a church that's giving people meals every day? Like, so I I think, and I kind of kept running into this theme throughout the episode. It's a problem. It's a matter of scale. I don't think it's a matter of. Totally. We have one or the other. It's all or nothing. It's a binary choice. It's not there's a gradient there and it's a matter of scale. And I think when you try to scale up these kinds of efforts, that's when you start to see lots of waste, fraud and abuse. And in my view, localized efforts utilizing local knowledge is more efficient. And that tends to take the form of private, like charitable efforts. So Mm -hmm. do you think the reason then that we don't see as much local charitable work is because um, individuals or groups in local communities basically look around and say like, well, it seems like someone is working on the problem and that someone is the government in some way, you know, like would it, would it take a complete withdrawal of basically the government in LA saying like, 
not a penny more to building these tiny houses for more than Stephen Henning can buy a townhouse for. That's that's like <laughs> double what I paid for this place, yeah, you guys. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. like, does like is the best way to get that flip to basically just have the government withdraw and create a temporary vacuum that might make it much worse for many people in the process. But is that, is that what like local charitable organizations are lacking is essentially a problem to solve now because it's being attempted to be solved by a government institution? I, I I don't know. I, I don't think so. And again, I don't think it's a choice between all or nothing. I think that, um, Scale in back. a society as right. in a society as large as ours, like there's there's absolutely a role for like what economists refer to as like government transfer payments, right? Like some form of like public welfare. I think I think oh. that's on a on a large uh, it, again in a society as large as ours. I think there is a role for that. Um, I would I haven't looked into this enough to have like specific data points to share but i would imagine that if there are if there's some sort of disincentive that's preventing more private charitable efforts it's probably a matter of like bureaucratic red tape and regulation that's maybe in the way that makes starting Mm. these things difficult um and it also might be like a cultural challenge in that local community maybe there aren't people who care right like, I mean, that's real. Um, yeah. But totally. I would imagine that it's more like. Maybe that's how that vacuum like, was first filled by a government entity, basically. Perhaps. Local, state, or federal government just looking around and being like, well, I mean, someone's got to do something, you know, and just kind of leaping in because no one was, no one else was rolling up their sleeves. Yeah. Well, maybe. And I also imagine that like in LA, for example, which is a highly regulated um community i would imagine if you were trying to start like a food kitchen mm. the cost of starting something like that and the and the hoops like bureaucratic hoops you'd have to jump through it's probably pretty cumbersome and again i don't have a specific i don't have specific like laws on the books that I can point to and say like, this is what needs to be reformed. Cause I haven't looked into it, but I would, I would imagine it's more sort of that like bureaucratic process that's slowing down and disincentivizing private entities from entering the marketplace. Yeah, um, sure. Okay. Not a matter of people looking around and saying like, well, the government's doing a really good job. So we might as well like not try. Cause the reality is like, there are a ton of government welfare programs operating in LA County and mm-hmm. it's a fucking mess. So like clearly the government actually isn't very good at addressing these problems because the problem grows but they still Um, wield enough power to basically edge and like elbow out the people who are doing the startup thing to try and contribute alongside i suppose i don't know if it's i don't i wouldn't i wouldn't claim that it's a conscious effort to keep private charitable entities oh, out yeah probably not yeah, the thing, I don't, I don't but it, it's one of those there's un- unintended consequences of big government zero incentive for federal government and even local but less so local but zero incentive for federal government to work alongside locals sure but there's forced obligation to work alongside the federal government that's uh, true um 
another point on this, on like the, the charity conversation you guys were having when you were talking about like, what's the impact of Torna's private charitable giving versus government's, you know, transfer payments. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, well, one, one, I don't think you can really equally compare those two things. Because in my mind, those are apples and oranges, or oranges that are known. <laughs> oranges. But the, um, because I think that like the efficiency of Torna's personal charity is not equivalent to the efficiency of government's transfer payments. Right. Each of those dollars spent have varying degrees of impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that comes so, back to the, the question of scale that you pointed out. Before. Yeah, exactly. Like, why would we assume that the federal government could spend three million and Torna spend three million, and those yes. l- look different, right? Like it's a scale. It's yeah. a, it's a it's like a lump sum or a you know the the way it's metered out. Like three million is three million, but at a scale that is just too cumbersome. Well, and when you think about what like the journey of that federal dollar versus Torna's private Mm -hmm. dollar, a dollar tax is then divvied up amongst countless agencies distributed through the appropriations process and then first spent on sustaining the bureaucracy used to facilitate Mm -hmm. the government program. Mm. That's not efficient, right? Whereas Torna might- double or triple taxed at that point by the time it reaches the beneficiary of the tax dollar. Well, what what I what I conclude from that is that you you need more government money because there's so much bureaucracy than process in the way in between the tax dollar and the person who's benefiting from it mm-hmm. that you need more to have the same output of impact on that individual than you would if an if a private person if Torna was just giving that individual right whatever it is they a couch yeah food it's like, whatever it is right couch that's a random thing <laughs> nobody's <laughs> go around giving homeless people couches but like yeah a dollar one to one you know yeah. like a dollar handed to another human being doesn't go through the same like it's like a filtering process almost. like every it is yeah everybody you know you start at the top of the funnel and everybody gets a little nibble off of it by the time it actually gets back down to the place it was destined to go right think about that you know you got everyone that's processing taxes they all get paid and i can't even imagine what that is just that step just that alone right exactly (laughs) so how much tax that would be an interesting stat Hmm. how much money goes into just processing taxes yeah how many federal dollars are spent on how much money sustains the irs every year yeah Biden wants to give the IRS more money because the theory is he'll pay for his his infrastructure plan by making the IRS more efficient at extracting tax dollars from the American people, which so I think is laughable. I is think all the... it will do is create like just more jobs for people in the IRS and they <sighs> won't. Anyways. Okay. So I know we are trying to go beyond meme culture as often as we can (laughs) but uh one of my favorite memes as of late is the rick and morty meme where morty is saying something to rick and then rick responds with that just sounds like blank with (laughs) i don't know if you've seen this format yes 
it is a great format. There's an there's one that I recently saw, and Morty's like talking about government uh, employees, and then Morty or and or sorry, Morty's talking about government employees, and Rick just goes, "That sounds like social wear, uh, welfare with more steps." With more steps, <laughs> yeah, actually, kind of. <laughs> so all government employees are on welfare. Whoa. Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Um, they're subsidized, right, by taxpayers. So here's, I think, a really great and very relevant recent example of just how wasteful government from, transfer payments can be. Is this from Festivus 2020? Oh my God. Actually, you saying that, though, makes me think when I first was listening to this. To this last uh, the two episodes ago, the whiskey bench and putting these notes together, I had I thought about Seinfeld when uh, in Festivus when George's dad's like, I got a lot of problems with you people <laughs> because I was just like <laughs> ranting down all these, <laughs> which is not my attitude, but I thought that was kind of funny. Anyways, I'm off on a tangent, but excellent. Here's a good example of how wasteful government transfer payments can be. Of the $6 trillion spent on COVID relief, and this is just one example of fraud and all of that. It's going to hurt my heart, whatever you're about to say. $200 billion was lost to unemployment fraud alone. $200 billion. That is more than we invested in ramping up vaccine production mm. by a lot. I think it was like $76 billion. Mm. $200 billion was lost to unemployment fraud in the United States. And that's like my money, your money, Jennings yeah. money, every S single person that's listening's money. Right. Sending checks to people who were dead, sending checks to people who weren't citizens and didn't live in the United States. Right. There was a whole And we had mentioned this I mean, this must have been months ago. Yeah. The uh, there was a rapper. I was just going to say yes. that was my favorite one. Yeah. There was a there was a rapper in L LA again. Just a community that just keeps on giving anecdotes for this kind of thing. But anyways, <laughs> LA rapper who was able to collect 1.2 million in benefits by stealing identities. And he was caught only after he posted a video, a rap video he made about it on YouTube. And my favorite line from the video, we've shared this on the Whiskey Bunch before, but the line is, you got to sell cocaine. I just got to file a claim. <laughs> and so, like, which like, you know, God bless him. He's clever for coming up with that. Not so clever posting it. But anyways, so that's just one example of how, and again, it's a matter of scale, right? Mm -hmm. A federal government trying to send checks to millions of people is messy, right? right. And, and when you're talking about $6 trillion, 200 billion being lost to fraud is like maybe a reasonable amount, but it's not something that I as a taxpayer want to tolerate, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, that I thought was an interesting example. This is why I always waste. say, now granted, there's a lot of money printing going on right now, okay? But this is why I always say like, there's plenty of tax money already. There's a lot of tax oh, money out there. There's a lot of money that could be reallocated <laughs> to better uses for sure. Yeah. I just, I don't know how to like get this through to people. Taxing people, like I get it. It's a really touchy subject, the taxing the billionaires thing and everything like that. But like, it's not a money problem. No, it's not. And the reality is, well, I have thoughts on that too. Yeah. But the reality- I'm derailing your thoughts. No, no, no that's okay. But the reality is, is like, 
uh, gosh, I wish I could pull up the stat right now. But if you were to tax, someone did the math. And if you were to like, not even tax, but just Forcibly like seize, seize all of, yeah. Yeah. All of the wealth of America's billionaires, it would fund the federal government for like less than a week. I think it was like five days. So to me, hearing that, it's not a problem of there being too much private wealth. It's a problem of the fucking government being too big and too expensive. That's crazy, right? So it's not a matter of just needing to confiscate people's wealth. That doesn't solve the problem because the underlying problem is we have an unsustainable model that we're offering. find ways to lose it. (laughs) Well, in that. Um, Another little tidbit that I think is worth pointing out. Um, when Hillary Clinton was running for president in 2016, she advocated for removing charitable donations from tax exemption, which is dirty, insane. Yeah. yeah. And and I think the thinking was that if you did that, you would create a greater demand for public welfare and justify an expansion of government. And maybe that's just a cynical take, but I don't understand. I don't I can't imagine whatever motivation there would be by, dis- so by disincentivizing mm-hmm. charitable giving. Is that what that does? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because, because if he, you can't write it off, well I mean just, that. I mean that is why people, a lot of really wealthy people, do donate mm-hmm. so, so much. Here is a great example. So yeah. uh, there are a lot of people that are, I would say, not even that wealthy in the scheme of things, mm-hmm. like millionaires, but um, that will pay people to seek out charities to equalize their tax burden so like they'll just pay someone to donate as much money as possible to not pay taxes so you know the example that i've seen because i've heard a lot of people talking about this I actually went to a talk about um charitable giving and, and tax and stuff like that but basically they're like hey if you're getting taxed say eight hundred thousand dollars but you find out that if you give five hundred thousand dollars to charities that you won't pay any taxes why would you not do that Right. That brings me perfectly, actually, to my next point on taxes, which is that tax loopholes are a failure of government, not which of the market. Which is what I said. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that. So if you're mad about that, then the write people, your senator. The people that we <laughs> elected, and that's, and again, that's exactly what I said. The people that yeah. we elected right. wrote the tax right. code. Right. The tax code is a roadmap mm-hmm. generally to where the government wants you to spend your money. That also ties into where they want you to put your money as far as incentives and things like that. And so, mm-hmm. hey, not the billion's fault, billionaire's fault, there's loopholes. Right. Like if we aren't happy and like maybe there's a perfectly good argument to be made to reduce. I I, I am personally in favor of simplifying our tax code oh, yeah. dramatically, right? And there being less loopholes. But the fact that there are loopholes now I don't think we should blame people with resources for exploiting those loopholes. Mm. I think we should blame the politicians who wrote those into law. What do you, right? what do you think and of a complete- Who were probably lobbied by special interest groups who right. wanted those loopholes, right? <laughs> but like, they're on the books, people exploiting them, that's perfectly legal, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So if we want to change that, we need to change the law. What, do you, what did you think of our, I think, brief discussion of flat tax- I don't know. Because that kind of feels like it solves that issue. Like if it's an overhaul and we just call it a percentage flat tax across every income bracket. Yeah. I mean, that idea is attractive. I I don't think 
I haven't fully formulated an opinion on that because I, I also either. see the value. I understand the argument that there are there are income brackets that it it's not. I mean, unless the flat tax is zero, maybe I'm cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know. Wow, I just what a libertarian I, I can you also, are. <laughs> I can also understand, you know, that um, there are obviously certain income brackets that can afford to pay more, and folks that can cannot. Right. So. Mm. So I don't know if that's, um, I mean, fair is a subjective term, but I don't know if that's the fairest way to structure. Mm. Well, yeah, certainly when you're talking but, about income tax and you're thinking like 25, 30%, but I mean, if the flat tax was just call it a cool 15 across the board from making $30,000 a year on a part-time job to Mr. Jeffrey Bezos. Um, and however the fuck much money he makes every minute, um, like if it was just 15%, that, that just seems so simple to me. And of course there's pitfalls in that because I'm attracted to that simplicity, Mm. but I mean, it's an interesting, that way you can just say like everyone pays exactly how much they ought to based on the new tax code. You know, it's not, it's not growing exponentially as you like rising tax brackets. Yes, I can afford to pay more, but if anything, I mean, wow. Like what a libertarian thing is like, yeah, I can afford to pay more, but that also empowers me to like invest in the economy. I'm in the markets, you know, I'm like, I can donate more to charity because I'm being taxed less. And maybe that's the ideal person. That's like who I want to be when I'm rich, you know? So it's like, Mm-hmm. I just expect that everyone will be that way. Of course, there will be, be people still looking for loopholes just because they want more and more. But Well, and I also think an argument in favor of a flat tax is that the way our tax system is structured now, it does create, when you're on the brink of one tax bracket to the next, it does kind of create a disincentive to move Totally. To progress in your career up to that next tax bracket, right? Because here's a totally. great example. Yeah. Uh, Henning, someone that we knew from school uh, who did IT and things like that. Mm-hmm. He was in school running his own business. And I believe just part time while in school, the first year he came in like under 30,000. Great. Just side hustle kind of stuff. Yep. Then. The following year after graduating, he ramped up and ended up making a substantial amount more, like a substantial amount more. And because he was self-employed and he like wasn't an S-corp, he kind of got hit hard on taxes and he made less mm-hmm. than part-time. And so he's like, wow. I'm just going to start working less. Right, exactly. <clears throat> and that is that is the choice a lot of people make because it's rational. Yeah. Because you either have to work a ton more and make a ton, ton more. And be taxed more, but you have, but your margin is so big that like you are still increasing your quality of life. Yep. Yeah. Right. But that requires a lot of work, right? To get to that point. So there are lots of people who are kind of on the cusp and they will opt to be less productive, which is not just a problem for them, but for society at large, right? right? Because there's ripple effects. But it's like, how can you blame him? He's like, I'm going to make more money working less. And so I can spend more time with my wife and my kids. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
So those kind of perverse incentives right. are screwed. But yeah, could right? you imagine though if you go from like making seventy thousand to eighty thousand dollars a year, and you could literally just whip out a calculator and be like times point one five, and those are right. my predicted taxes. Yeah, hey, I'm. Yeah, totally. The other thing too is it would make taxes a lot more. Well, we wouldn't need so many people at the IRS. True that. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is yeah. great. Totally. And the thing is, like, it's I don't understand taxes. I've been doing my own taxes for I don't know ten years now, more than that. Mm-hmm. I think since I was sixteen. Yeah, ten years. Not more than that. <laughs> ten years. How old are you? Twenty-six. <laughs> exactly. 10 uh, I've been years. doing my own taxes for ten years. Mm-hmm. And it's confusing and I have no money or much to have to deal with. Thank God for TurboTax. Yeah. And so, speaking of special interest, a private solution. Thank you. Even (laughs) even for very young people that just have, you know, a W 2 at the end of the year. Right. It's confusing. It is. Whereas a flat tax would empower the people to be able to actually understand and be accountable for their money a little easier. True. Know where their money's going. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely for, um, I haven't fully formulated a thought on on a flat tax versus more progressive tax, but I'm definitely for simplifying our tax yep. code, which is maybe a cop-out, but I think, it, I think pretty much most people would probably argue for a simpler tax code. Um, but one of the other thoughts that I wanted to share on kind of the tax question is that there was some discussion in your guys' conversation about about just taxing the wealthy more. And I think it's worth pointing out that we know that taxing more beyond a certain rate diminishes productivity, um, it limits investment opportunities, and it overall retards economic growth, mm-hmm. which means that there are uh, fewer jobs and people are poorer overall. And we're talking long-term here. So simply raising taxes on the world's billionaires isn't like an instant permanent solution to alleviating poverty. Um, And I think you can make an argument that it would actually increase, or excuse me, it would not increase tax revenue in the long run because because it's slowing overall economic growth. So you're sort of like shrinking the pie of available resources to Mm -hmm, tax. mm -hmm. And the reality is we want a business to be profitable, right? Right. Like, the profit a business earns isn't turned into gold bars and like stashed under the bed of the CEO, right? right? It's it's reinvested in the business. It's invested in innovation and in startups, et cetera. And we need that kind of investment capital for the economy to grow, for jobs to be created, you know, for, for scientific and medical breakthroughs to happen. Like we need that investment capital. Yeah. Um, so we should be stoked when Amazon is had a profitable year because that means that 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 capital is going to be reinvested in the economy and it's going to create better goods and services and answers to problems that that the market has and i think so this is what's interesting i mean you might have a better grasp on this because honestly i just don't know but i think kevin and alex both multiple times in that conversation kept saying that okay but that's just income tax i was just going to get to that and (laughs) I wasn't understanding their point just because like there's a reason I switched my business to a corporate tax setup because I pay myself and then I get paid income tax on what I pay myself mm-hmm. and then I get a corporate tax which is much lower rates on my business then depending on how I allocate my money back into my business I can lower that even further 
these big companies have so many employees and are paying out so much money that the amount of tax revenue from just income tax is incredible. And then like you were just talking about that reallocation, like Bezos puts billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars back into Amazon or, or projects. And that that's him building warehouses. That's him building factories. That's him building all these things. And then all of those buildings being built have payroll for right. construction workers right. for yada, 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 yada. Yeah. So I think what they were driving at in, and I think, and Kevin and Alex feel free to tweet at me or something if I'm, if I'm going in the wrong direction here. But what I think they were driving at is an income tax versus a wealth tax. Ah. And a wealth tax is a whole other beast. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. And thanks to Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, The N2 Podcast. And it's that I got this unusual gift of finding out that my love has an incurable autoimmune disease that will shorten her life by up to 20 years. That seems like an odd gift, but... My stupid, dumb, giant tattoo on my ribs. Mm. I have grown to love so much Mm. over the years. You know? Yeah, freaking nerd. My- yeah. <laughs> Tell me what you like about me. Don't be a dude. Oh yeah? yeah. Oh, yeah? yeah. Name 10 things about Katie that you oh, like yeah? then. Oh yeah, you like me? Why don't you marry me, sucker? <laughs> Name her first album. Yeah. And now, back to our conversation. One of the things that I think Kevin was pointing out is that that um, people like Jeff Bezos, right? These like kind of iconic billionaires that have become like the villains of our conversations about this stuff. Um, They don't hold, or they, they do hold most of their wealth in non-liquid assets, right? In real estate, in fine art, you know, whatever. And so these aren't things that are, that are taxed as income. Um, And that's kind of what that ProPublica quote unquote expose revealed, which right. what it revealed was that the journalist didn't understand the difference between <laughs> income and and wealth. But um anyway, uh I think that it's worth keeping in mind that like a wealth tax is an entirely different beast than an income tax. And and the way you would execute that is complicated. Um and I I I personally think that it's theft. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, we can put it into perspective by asking, like, you know, what about your, you know, engagement ring that's worth, I don't know, how much do engagement rings cost? Probably a nice one can be, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm going to guess. Probably. I don't know, but, like, Henning... Help me out here, because you're the only one that's actually ever bought a ring. <sighs> but um, I, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, Bezos's ring was probably different sh- than sure, the one. Sure. That but like, I would say on average, <laughs> it's probably not uncommon five thousand dollars. Oh my god, it's a lot more than I, that. But I'm just saying, like on average, yeah. I okay. am the absolute worst person to ask because when I it when I was twenty, 
and <laughs> right. and right. bought my wife's original wedding slash engagement combo. This was like it was like nickel silver plated cubic zirconia or whatever. I spent a total of a hundred and fifty dollars on it. Right, and I know a lot of people that have ten thousand dollar rings, and so ten thousand. Uh, yeah. I mean, like the market I mean, is absolutely insane. Average. Like I, right. You sure. best believe yeah. I was searching and shopping online by sorting prices lowest to highest. Um, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I knew my budget. <laughs> I I should say for the record, by the way, because I'm very proud of it. Is for Christmas oh. this last year, I got my wife a new uh, custom wedding ring with uh with rose gold and it's lined with like these tiny beautiful black diamonds. So cool. Oh, so pretty. cool. Mm-hmm. Had a custom nice. made, one of a kind. Very proud of it. And but even that, five hundred bucks. Hmm. Right. So like still I guess I I'm still it. not the right person to ask. I did <laughs> <laughs> I did a quick Google search. Twenty nineteen, a survey from the knot found that most people spend around six thousand dollars on a ring. Okay. All right. All right. The first, the first Google shop search suggestions, suggestions, forty five thousand five hundred dollars for one ring. So it varies. But yeah, anyway, right. my point though is that, do you think you should be taxed when you purchase that ring, and then taxed every year that you just own it? Because that's how how wealth tax would work, right? If you if you buy a you know three hundred thousand dollar original mm. whoever painting, okay, right. you think you should be taxed just for owning that every so, single year? To put it simply, because I honestly haven't done the work to learn the difference between what you're highlighting is income tax is literally like w- what you make per year. Wealth tax is like. A, a tax on your net worth per year. Your wealth, your assets. Yeah, like all that. of your non-liquid assets. Got, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. That's fucked up. Are liquid and non-liquid. Right. But like, yeah. I mean, that to me is and here's, here's <laughs> Yeah, and here's the very, very important thing. At the end of the day, the richest people would be fine. If something like that was implemented, I don't know if that's true, Torna. No, but but hear me out. Long term, no, they but, wouldn't. They'd but, stop investing in these things. They the whole society would suffer, right? Maybe. But here's the. This is where I'm going with this. As far as because you just mentioned long term, it's easy to say, oh, these guys have billions and billions and billions of dollars. They can handle that. And realistically, they probably could. But now you have made it even more difficult for the average Joe to acquire any wealth. That's true. That part is true. But I also think long term, people respond to incentives. Mm-hmm. If you remove the incentive to be the best company at distribution in the world, then like you're going to stop being the best company at distribution in the world, right? Like if, if you don't have a reasonable profit margin to reinvest in your business, your business isn't going to grow. That's true. Right? Yeah. And that's what I meant by like, eventually you shrink the pie of taxable assets. You can't just, so there isn't just some, what did um, Margaret Thatcher say? She summed it up beautifully. She said, socialism works until you run out of other people's money. Fair. And, thing- and so like, so, and and maybe a wealth tax isn't, I, I don't mean to have the cheap argument of like, it's socialism. Cause mm-hmm. like, it, that's not, centralized authority over the means of production, right? Those are different things. But 
I think the argument is the same that like, if you eventually you can't, you can't expect to confiscate wealth and for mm -hmm. people to cr continue to keep creating that wealth. Right, exactly. Eventually that wealth will be gone. True. That's Once trend, again, Cat, so. you have described the plot of Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> <laughs> See, here's never a, even no. read it. How do I do this? <laughs> See, really, it's maybe maybe the book's not even that groundbreaking. It's maybe just it's uh, not. It's just common oh, maybe thought. Maybe it was right? for its time, but it was for its true, time. true. Especially <laughs> considering the era that it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. But, um, published Gosh, during. That makes yeah, me no, that so makes happy sense. every time you do that, Cat, because I'm like, I've read it. <laughs> I know what she's talking about. <laughs> Uh, oh my god i'm just a caricature of myself i guess <laughs> <laughs> right and and you know if anything like that was if you were trying to tax wealth because we're already seeing it like you know that then they're like okay we can probably hedge this but we're gonna lay off half of our employees and invest in automation and all these things right which they're already doing they're just doing more right and then what then are you going to say, oh, well. Then we need a universal they, basic income because nobody has jobs. That or worse, <laughs> worse being like, well, you're a top employer. Like you have to employ people. Like you can't automate. Like we need to have oh, maybe. human employees. Yeah. I think it'll to me, to that's a, not a stretch to me at all. I think it'll go to UBI first. Maybe. Because the government would rather have people who are just like on the dole and true. will keep voting for the people who keep giving them more until it all collapses but i'm a cynic so <laughs> hey look at uh history of welfare it's kind of the uh the trend and again wow we're just like really nicely teeing up these transitions here tonight <laughs> unintentionally i didn't i didn't even see her notes. no you have no idea what's going on over here on my Amazing. laptop but um, you know what they say great minds we're becoming think. professionals right. my friends look at us but, go that is it's, it's happening <laughs> in real time um <laughs> No, but I think, um, oh, great. Now I've lost my train of thought. But, uh, oh, that we're not, again, like, and I'm super guilty of this, but we all tend, in the conversation you guys had a two episodes ago, tended to kind of devolve into this, like, binary choice of these kind of, like, cartoonish depictions of, of what it's like to have, like, total government control versus no government anarchy chaos right and like that isn't the reality of the choice that we're looking at here right so it's a matter of scale and again i think there is a there certainly is a role for government and there certainly is in a society as large as ours a role for some kind of um assistance right from the government but how big do we want that bureaucracy to be right and and how centralized we want those decisions to be do you think maybe i think that's the, the real question the, the bar to be a beneficiary of those benefits is too low um i think in certain instances it is and i think in other cases we we create um we incentivize moving into that mm -hmm. role mm. as a beneficiary too readily um okay. i think like Again, with with our <laughs> ridiculous response to COVID, like in terms of in terms of transfer payments, like I think there's a very fair argument to be made that the extending the additional six hundred dollar federal unemployment benefits has been 
a major factor in suppressing employment. Mm. And and especially since certain states like Montana has rejected and that started at the beginning of the summer they rejected that additional $600 federal unemployment benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can I say something on the record? I see so many people that hate Gianforte. Like he's hate, been super demonized. Yeah. Yeah, hate him blindly. Yeah. And look, I met the guy. I've been to his some events. I don't know him. He does some things where I'm like, I don't see how you could ever justify doing that. But like, I applaud him for how he's handled this. I think I brought it up in the goods episode. It. Exactly. About this. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. Think, I think he's doing a pretty good job as governor. Yeah. Well, and, and again, it's like our whole society is structured excuse me, is structured around like creating a villain and a hero and there's no room for nuance, you know, and like Gianforte is not the devil, but he's a, he's a human being that's fallible. Right. And like, sure, there are going to be policies that you do not agree with, but I, but I don't think he's the monster he's been depicted to be. And I think in this particular instance with the federal unemployment benefits, I also applaud him for rejecting those. And since that, so those, um, that extra $600 is supposed to expire in September. And I would imagine the Democrats are going to try to extend it further. And although with the bind Biden's in now, maybe (laughs) they won't push for that. But, um, so some States have rejected it like Montana, other States have not like California. And that kind of started roughly at the beginning of the summer and towards the end of the summer. Now we can look at unemployment rates and, the states that rejected it are largely doing better than the states that have accepted it. And, and, you know, that's, you can't draw a perfect conclusion from that, but I think it's, um, I think it's something that can inform what you're looking at with our unemployment rates in various states. Um, and I think it's, it's largely fair to say that, that, uh, that extra unemployment benefit created disincentive for people to go back to work. Last I checked, there were, what was it? 9 million job openings in the United States. So we don't have, there isn't an issue of, of their, of lack of opportunity. We desperately need workers and those jobs are not being filled. And I think when you do a state by state comparison, you Mm -hmm. can see that the states that are, making it easier for people to not work where they're potentially making more money not working than they would if they were working. That's one example of the government of bureaucracy creating a disincentive. Uh, It's tempting, especially if you're, you know, half witted because last year for me was a pretty good business year. And this year has been a pretty slow business year. And if I would have just taken unemployment because of COVID, I would have got like 80% of what I made last year. And I would have come out so far ahead. And I did the math. I could have done it. And I know a lot of people that did do the math. And they were like, okay. I know a lot of people back home in California who are like, and it's a rational choice, mm-hmm. right? They're just presented with an option, right? And right. they're like, well, yeah, I'm going to take some time and figure out like, I'll make a career move and I'm going to take my time. I've got till September, you know? I mean, there are a lot of people doing that. Yeah. And I don't really fault those people. No, for doing not at that, all. Right? It's, it's very, very, very tempting. Right. But if we want... If we're if the aim is for full employment, then like don't pay people to not work, right? You know, and 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 again, it's scale, right? Like mm-hmm. certainly, of course. Well, we can go down a whole rabbit hole of this, but like 
we had massive rates of, we had the highest employment that we had had since I think the 1960s, if I'm remembering correctly, in the United States before COVID lockdowns. Mm -hmm. And then the government, whether you think it was justified or not, the government forced businesses to close and which led to people being laid off. And they created this unemployment crisis. And then their solution to the crisis that they created actually prolongs the crisis. So it's just, it's another example of the scale of this stuff. When Mm -hmm. it gets too big, it becomes cumbersome, it becomes complicated, and it kind of diverges from its stated aim, right? There are lots of unintended consequences. Yes, and this this goes back to very beginning of our conversation this evening when we were talking about the scale and, and federal intervention and things like that, especially when you're talking about economy and, and COVID-related um, regulation, things like that. The federal government looks at New York and LA and then makes some decision based off of the worst places in the country and then implements everywhere else to follow those same regulations. And in reality, what needed to happen in LA versus what needed to happen in New York are different, let alone what needs to happen in Dillon, Montana, or needs to happen in, what is it, uh, Storm City, Iowa, or (laughs) I'm trying to think of small towns. Yeah, (laughs) right. for sure. And that's where federalism is so beautiful. Exactly. The the federal government can't accurately... Knowledge problem. Yeah, it's a knowledge problem. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, And that's where I actually think in the whole COVID saga, it was a real vindication for federalism, right? Mm Because we were able to experiment. We were able to use local knowledge and we were able to prescribe solutions that were definitely imperfect, but, you know, that were at least somewhat tailored to the communities that they were targeted toward rather than some sort of blanket rule, which at the beginning of this whole thing, there was a lot of voices calling for, a blanket federal rule. Exactly, which and don't I'm ever do that. grateful that that did not happen. And there's another important nuance here. You know, people can look at a certain state and say, hey, look, this state did this, made this decision, and here's the outcome, and I hate that. They shouldn't have done that. And I look at that and I say, okay, maybe that's an unfavorable outcome, but it's great that this state did that. Because now we know. Now we know. And right. those people elected whoever is making the decisions there and like they choose to live there. And that's a whole heck of a lot better than a blanketed approach. That's just how I view it. Yeah. You can hate it or you can say, Hmm, if our state tries to make this decision or maybe your state made the decisions you're not happy with. Now you can say, Oh, okay. All right. Well, we better do something about it. Well, and especially with an issue like COVID where like population density and climate and even like geography to some degree, like all impact how the virus will will challenge your community. Like it, you definitely need localized solutions, right? Like what is going to make sense for a really densely populated urban city in a cold region in the wintertime, like New York is going to be very different than what you need in like some rural part of the Central Valley of California that's not densely populated and it's 70 degrees most of the year. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like there's so, so yeah, like the, the federalism that was at play during 
the COVID crisis, I think was a, a blessing. And a lot of the, yeah, there are a lot of critics of it, but I think, um, the way the scene, we the, the way I view it is, you know, the, the child's game, that's like a tub. It's got the different shapes on the lid. You have to find the block and put it in the right shape. It's like very basic, like three-year-old toy. I never had a childhood. I don't know. Actually, Jesus. I've, I know a- like a lot of, I know like, <laughs> that was grim. Wow. Anyway, I know a lot of, I know quite a few like three-year-olds and actually three-year-olds are pretty like advanced. Maybe it's like a one-year-old toy. Mm. I, the way I look at like federalism versus the federal government is like the federal government has a map of the United States and each state is like a shape. You could even say it's the shape of the state. And the federal government has no matching blocks and they're trying to put their block into each of the state's shape. I like this. And analogy. it won't fit into any of them. Yeah. And they're like, but it's going to. So then they just put a big blanket. Over yeah. The so then thing. they take the shape <laughs> lid off and then toss it in. Mm, yeah. I'm working on getting better at analogies. This is a good analogy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, now I will just force us to transition into my nice thing, but um, it kind of, it kind of jives. And I've mentioned this a few times tonight, but when we talk about government, we tend to present it as this binary choice between like no government or all government. And I think, that that's largely really unproductive because that's not a real choice that we're actually facing. And again, like I've said a couple of times, what we're talking about is scale. So like with the vigilante example that was brought up in the episode, Mm. two episodes ago, that's silly, of course, right? Because um, there's of course a need for police. And I think it's worth pointing out that a free market cannot function without rule of law. That's like a fundamental aspect of a free market Mm. system because because a, a sort of a linchpin of a free market are property rights. And if you don't have rule of law and frankly, some authority mm-hmm. to enforce those property rights, then voluntary exchange cannot happen and a free market cannot function efficiently. So it was, so I, I felt like that maybe that was a little bit misrepresented that as if you could have some sort of free market utopia without without some sort of law and order. That's those are the institutions that are a bedrock of a free market system. Uh, Which this ties back to. I mean, this this goes back to the last episode when we were talking about Afghanistan and mm-hmm. just looking at like some of the most basic needs within a society to function. Like mm-hmm. I had mentioned, is like some of these rural tribes, especially if they're expanding things like that, they're just looking for some sort of order and that might be as simple as like you know uh conflict within the market like how to resolve conflict within the market yeah through some sort of authority yeah like yeah. very fundamental bedrock cornerstone i can't think of any other totally synonyms. no yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well when you look at like some of the poorest nations around the world mm-hmm. part of their problem is they have a corrupt government and there is no real rule of law um, and so property rights cannot be enforced. Mm-hmm. And and when you don't have rights over your property and it can be taken from you by the government or by bad actors, like private bad actors, there's no incentive to turn that property into something, right? Mm-hmm. There's no incentive to build it or grow it. And that and that leads to poverty. And and in instances where where property rights are applied, all of a sudden a farmer can be, will be more productive 
because he knows that he will actually like reap the yields of his crop, right? Um, and that has a, a ripple effect throughout his community. So property rights are, are and the ability to enforce them are key piece of a functioning free market. But an example I wanted to cite was that when, and kind of playing off of this vigilante versus police anecdote that we had, when when our police from, so from where I'm from in San Jose, California, uh, our police union had negotiated really sort of lavish pension plans and it was bankrupting the city. And so there was a measure put forth eventually and um, to kind of reform those pensions. And it was voted in favor of uh, by a pretty large majority. And and so everyone was stoked, right? They're like, cool, we're going to reform these pensions and we're not going to be bankrupt. Well, then the police union, because it's incredibly powerful, was able to take, basically sue the state. And uh, the court then in California overturned that legislation and basically overturned the will of the people. And in my mind, that's an example of where government has gotten too big. Mm-hmm. If people, if if the community that the government is allegedly serving say, hey, we can't afford this and we need to reform it, and they they vote to reform it, but the bureaucracy is so big that the public sector union has enough power that they can overturn that and change the will of the people, or I guess not change, but overturn the will of the people, that's a problem in my mind. So again, it's a question of scale, right? Like, yes, we need rule of law. Yes, we need some authority to enforce it. But when it gets too big, it does become a threat to the people. So we have to be mindful of that. And then another thought that I had was that we seem to kind of operate on this assumption that like the private sector is full of really selfish people that are, that are, well, and then, and then the government is full of benevolent actors, right. That are, that have society's best interests at heart. Um, And I think that's, I think that's really naive, right? Like the government is in fact, just made up of human beings who operate under the same self-interest as private actors do. But government's incentive is to grow larger. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what we need is a system that channels self-interest in the most productive way to benefit the most people within society and to most efficiently allocate scarce resources so that people's needs can be met. So I guess the question sort of is like, which system does that better? Which system channels self-interest better? Is it, is it private actors acting in the market or is it a centralized authority mandating it? Um, and obviously I would argue that I think private, that the private market channels that self-interest in a more efficient way in part because of that knowledge problem, because it's impossible for any one individual to have enough knowledge to make, to allocate those resources efficiently. And so dispersing that power amongst lots of people within a market uh, more efficiently allocates resources and and produces um, a better outcome than mm-hmm. a centralized authority does. Mm. And again, I think it's really worth noting, like these are choices between trade-offs 
right? Like there is no, it's not a binary choice. Utopia is not an option. It's a question of trade-offs. I kind of wonder if the trade-off that happens is a step, uh, kind of a step above just the question of like, is it benevolent government? Is it benevolent private actors? Or is it malicious government or malicious private actors? It's like, I have been wondering for a long time because like, like I wonder if like actual psychological personality or uh, I mean, there are a, a probably thousands, millions of contributing factors to creating me as a person and the way I think and the way I see the world. So I think when we when we run into the problem, here, here's another I guess here's another example that I wonder if it can be more of a both and and less of an either or, you know, that binary choice of like, um, mm-hmm. because I think it's really easy for, you know, I consider myself like libertarian ish. I'm libertarian light, you know, with, with, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't. The LaCroix I, of libertarianism. You. I still don't know. Or the white the, the essence <laughs> of libertarianism. I still don't know what I am. You know, I'm, I'm still. You're just bubbly water at the yeah. end of the day. Um, <laughs> but so I think I think it might actually come down to we see either what we are conditioned or we choose to see. So it it would be easy for someone who was like the beneficiary directly of like food stamps. Like I, I I've been thinking of Kevin throughout this whole episode because like he was able to like for a, for a moment just make Torna and me shut up for a sec. He's like, yeah, because I actually benefited from the food stamps. Like that kept me fed, you know? So right. based on all sorts of contextual uh, clues, like someone like Kevin might eventually just grow up to be the kind of person who assumes that, yes, it's the government's, it's it's a benevolent government structure because at a certain point you kind of interpret like it's it's like i assume the government should be benevolent because i assume that that is their actual job title you know and mm-hmm. at the same time the same types of people can look at private actors who are being selfish who are like like contributing to other you know societal values you know you you want to talk about like like you watch critiques of capitalism follow or be followed by critiques of like ineptitude with like environmentalism, like oil spills, all that kind of stuff. You look at that and you're like, well, the fucking business did that badly or, you know, other, other, uh, other countries or companies themselves are like, you know, dumping trash in the ocean or, you know, like some failure in the same place. Like, I wonder, like, if enough people just see beneficial things come th- from the government and, you know, eventually you kind of get tuned to seeing the worst that capitalism has to offer and the worst that some private actors have to offer us as a society. Whereas the same, you know, uh, people like you, Cat, would see more benefit coming from a private actor because you see, like, more, probably more benevolent private actors and eventually, I don't know. I, it just feels like maybe we're just talking, like trying to speak to each other's boogeymen without like addressing like, okay, but why do you think the government is 
the the best way to solve this um because some people for some people in their lives like the government is what solved the problem you know and for others private entities were what solved the problem for sure and that's why i've i've been trying to emphasize that like it's a matter of scale totally. it's not a matter of we have no government we have all yeah. government like there there is a role for again in a society as large as ours i do think that there is a role for some form of of government assistance and and i in the real my my perspective is and i think it's objectively true <laughs> frankly that there aren't benevolent actors are far and few between mm -hmm. right there aren't I, i'm not advocating that private businesses are run by benevolent people and i certainly don't think the government's run by benevolent people i think people are motivated by self-interest mm -hmm. and i think we have to think about what incentive structure can we establish mm, yeah that channels that self-interest into a productive end and in my view allowing individuals to make decisions in a system where they are held accountable to each other if a business screws you over and they have competition then their competition is incentivized to not screw you over so they can win that business and consumers are empowered to choose between between options of of business that are competing with each other right and and the ability to have more choice and more competition that holds people accountable in my mind creates uh, a better end it it better allocates resources and it it more efficiently delivers the goods and services that people desire and I think if you leave that up to bureaucrats, not because they're inherently evil, but because the system that they're operating within is so cluttered mm -hmm. that price signals are distorted, which means you don't have a good sense of what is needed and what it costs. And they aren't directly accountable for what they do, right? So you can't simply choose if the government is the only game in town that's mm -hmm. delivering some good to you, you don't have a choice in the matter, right? So they can deliver a subpar product to you day in and day out, but you don't, if there's no competition, you have no power to, 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 to not choose that product, right? You are forced to take that product. So I think, and again, I, I'm not trying to break this into a binary choice between boogeymen, but like, it's a matter of scale. And I think as you try to, to scale up, bureaucracy it tends to get less and less efficient can i can i add something to this yes because this is this is where my viewpoint comes in of being so pro private sector versus giving too much trust to the government or power to the government in a pro-capitalistic kind of free market setup the malevolent actors have very little power over you whereas in a federal or government setup malevolent actors have immense power over you. So if you think that Bezos is evil, Bezos at the end of the day really has no power over you. Zero. He can't force you to do anything. But a benevolent actor in in government can and will. Mm -hmm. And like we said before, they've got a monopoly on violence. Like they can put the law down on you. They can write the law that will not be in your favor. And I'd much rather be able to just look at, be not even Bezos, look at someone 
in the free market and say, I don't think this is a good person. I don't think that what they're doing is right. But that person actually has no power over me. So I'll because just, you have choice. That's yeah. the key. You have choice. Yeah. Right. And that's that's a nice thought to me. For sure. So that's in my mind, this isn't an argument for no government. It's an argument for limited government. Because I think as you try to scale it, it becomes less and less efficient, which I know is a cold economic term. But what it means essentially is that it gets less and less good at doing what it's set out to do. Mm. And you have, you know, what was the number? 200 billion in fraud of our tax dollars mm. wasted on criminals. Right? Like that's, and there's laws in the books against it, but they weren't able to enforce it or figure it out. Right? right. So like, that's not enough of a safeguard. So, so anyway, I think, I think it's an argument for limited government. I think it's a major argument for localized government, right? Small scale, local, local knowledge. And yeah, I'd like us to move away from just having conversations about these like extreme boogeymen on either mm. side because that isn't, you know, utopia is not an option and and it's more productive if we if we have conversations about the world we're actually living in rather than the world that, you know, we'd like to or are afraid of. I you know? think you are very very right. <laughs> As, as, All right, great. The only Good. Thing I have to offer, like, yeah, no, that's right. As they say in Parliament, here, here. I, I'm just, I'm fascinated by the fact that other people see it differently, you know. And maybe, maybe that's just a problem of education, and maybe they just need kind-hearted libertarians to show them the way, you know. <laughs> hey, you know what? Just, just talking about it blows your mind to, to you know, see a different view of perception of things i had my mind blown on twitter a couple days ago oh just like seeing because like in my group of people the the frustration tends to be non-montana people coming to montana oh yeah. and the whole like well don't bring your politics here and everything like that but like i just found a side of twitter that's like all these people are moving to Montana and are way too conservative. I can't, I have to leave Montana. They're ruining the state. Oh, really? Like completely opposite of, and that's like, I don't even ever hear that at all. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, huh. So interesting. We definitely can be siloed. Especially in the age of information. It's very easy to just hear your own echo chamber. It is, 100%. And it's funny because I'm like, I can't imagine leaving Montana. I love Montana so deeply. Mm -hmm. And then there's people that are like, I've been here my whole life and I have to leave because yada, yada. And I was like, oh, that's sad. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) I've been chewing on a concept. It's hard to hear. I'm like, I'm bummer that you feel like you have to leave I've been working kind of like mulling over a concept that I heard. I... At this point, I forgot where I heard it. I listened to so many podcasts, but the idea that, you know, if, if we're going to think, if we're going to continue to think of politics as a mere spectrum, because it's only two-sided, like if we must recognize that mm-hmm. that is the way it works, imagine someone is like three clicks to the right of center and like, however you interpret that, maybe that's extreme, maybe not. I didn't give you a how many <laughs> further than three but like imagine someone's yeah. at three <laughs> and if if i want to do any kind of beneficial work in those around me who might be three kick clicks to the right of center it is more beneficial for me to essentially set a goal 
of helping them move just one click to the left rather than going all the way to the mirrored side of zero. Like it's, it's foolishness for me to expect someone to go from three clicks to the right to three clicks to the left overnight with just one solidly packed argument of mine or one fantastic podcast episode I put out. But over time, you know, the, the work we have as humans to like engage in relationship with people is kind of invite them to be like, but what, see what, see where the grass is greener, just one click over, you know, you're still right. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But like, come over here a little bit, you know, like take a step, like, let me show you something that might convince you otherwise, you know, and that takes time and that takes a lot of patience. Um, and it certainly takes very, very nuanced conversations, which cat, as we wrap up here, I have to applaud like the, cause I think I brought him up in less, <laughs> less persuasive, less convincing ways. Um, because that's kind of my role on the whiskey bench anyway, but like, Yes, I absolutely agree that it is a problem of scale that we're dealing with. Like in any of these conversations, it's like one, you know, a single fix might work for a single individual. But as soon as you have like two people, their lives are different enough that you can't, you know, like scale from one above one is is hard to handle. So scale the both end conversations we have to be having, like, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's, um, I would love it if in our culture in America, we got to a point where we were tired of being divided. Right. Yep. Yep. You know, I mean, literally everything from our, our public institutions to our educational system, to our media institutions, we are so we are marketed to constantly to to break down into binary groups and to hate the other people on the other side. And the reality is there is a ton of nuance in the middle. And I mean, I was having conversations with people this week where I realized like, wow, we totally agree on this one policy thing. And we are on fucking hard opposite ends of the spectrum on another yeah, policy issue. Right. And and like and that's actually encouraging to me, right? Where it's like, wow, I found common ground with this person. Like you don't fit into a neat little box of my quote unquote enemy, you know, mm -hmm. like, oh yeah. And there's, we, I think or, more of us need or even, to like experience or that even or recognize expecting it. a perfect ally. Like you don't check every box that I do. Right. Like that's exactly. fascinating to me that everyone sees it yeah. just slightly differently. Like, yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. I feel, okay. So one of these days. Let's let's have Kevin and Alex back on and then we just spend an episode literally like digging into well, like let's f let's let's keep it like a counter going. Take a shot every time we find something that we completely agree on. Right. That'd be great. That would be right? fun. <laughs> We'd be desperate to find things to agree on too, right? What That's a, a good fun incentive. episode. <laughs> yeah, just because you want to get I trashed, like you mean? That's the desperation? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean. <laughs> just taking poles off the handle like Twitter. We're going to start a nonprofit called Shots hey. for Unity. Shots for Unity. <laughs> <laughs> the drinking game for world see, peace. So, <laughs> so maybe that's the first step, you know? Like we do that yeah. first and foremost. Start small. 
because <laughs> um, at that point, you know, if you find 10 things that you can completely agree on and then you find the one that you don't, you have so much to refer to and be like, okay, so my, my differing value from you now is based on how I see this. But like, that's also informed about how I think about this, this, and this. And I know that you agree with me, you know? Yeah. That, I love this idea. This is great. Shots for unity, my friends. (laughs) Hashtag shots for unity. Yes. (laughs) I'm all for it. Let's get on board, guys. That's good. All right. Well, I'm ready. Thanks for letting me rant, guys. No, it's good. It was nice. Ooh, child. Cat has thoughts. Ooh, child. Thank you, Alex and Kevin, for inspiring this conversation. Absolutely. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on The Whiskey Bench. If you would do us a favor, please tell a friend about the show in person, with a text, or by sharing about it on social media. You can join us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest, all at Whiskey Bench Pod. And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Remember, always drink responsibly. And cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty. Highline Media Network. Normal people in normal places.